Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. In our last episode, we asked the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? In that episode, we saw that although the doctrine of hell at first glance seems to contradict the loving and merciful God described in the Bible, the doctrine of hell makes it possible for God to be just. In this episode, I want us to look at another topic that confronts Christianity. The topic that I want us to look at is regarding the Gospels. In this episode, I want us to ask, are the Gospels reliable? This may be a question that you've never thought about or asked yourself. Many Christians happily read their Bibles and accept it for what it is, the Word of God. However, there are also Christians that wrestle with this question. The reason for their doubt is due to books like The Da Vinci Code or textual critics like Bart Ehrman who write books attacking the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Which camp is right? Are the Gospels reliable eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Or are they simply fabricated legends developed by Christians? More than that, were these stories about Jesus, written several decades after the life of Jesus, by people who never witnessed any of the events they recorded? These are very serious questions that must be looked at. So, are the Gospels reliable? In order to answer this question, we're going to look at several topics. In this episode, we're going to ask several more questions and get answers to the following. Are the oral traditions reliable? Are the Gospels the result of non-eyewitness memories? Were the Gospels written anonymously? And lastly, did legendary stories influence the Gospel narrative? So let's begin. By looking at and answering each of these questions, it will help provide the answer to our main question, which is, are the Gospels reliable? If you're a Christian, you view the Gospels as being the reliable Word of God. It's through the Gospels that we learn about who Jesus is and why He came to earth. It's through the Gospels that we learn that Jesus is no ordinary man, but is in fact God who took on flesh and came into the world that He created to die on the cross in order to set us free from our sins. This view of the Gospel is not held by all people. According to some, they argue that since the Gospels weren't written down for many decades after the events they supposedly record, they should not be viewed as being reliable. They argue that the Gospels were heavily influenced by legendary stories that were circulating and therefore do not represent actual historical events. It's well known in the field of biblical textual criticism that the events recorded in the Gospels weren't written down until several years after the death of Jesus. Now, these dates vary based on the theological camp that one holds to, but for the sake of this episode, I'll address the later dates that are given by Bart Ehrman. If you've never heard of Bart Ehrman, he's a New Testament textual critic, and he's written many popular books that have each attacked the New Testament. On page 15 of his book, Jesus Before the Gospels, Dr. Ehrman writes, quote, There are 40 to 65 years separating Jesus' death 
in our earliest accounts of his life. End quote. The question then becomes, if Jesus died around 30 to 33 AD, and the Gospels weren't written until 40 to 65 years later, can we trust that the Gospels record accurate information? Another question we should ask is, were the Gospels the unwilling participants of a first century version of the children's game Telephone? This is what Ehrman believes. The question that Bart Ehrman is asking here is a valid question and one that I think needs to be addressed. Are the oral histories and traditions reliable? If you've ever played the children's game Telephone, you understand that the phrase that we get at the end of the game is completely different from the phrase that was first shared at the start of the game. So the question is, does this game accurately represent oral traditions? To address this question, I'm going to share a paper written by Dr. Kenneth Bailey titled Informal Controlled Oral Tradition and the Synoptic Gospels. This paper has to do with Middle Eastern oral traditions and how they apply to the topic of the Synoptic Gospels. For anyone unfamiliar with this term, the Synoptic Gospels refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In these three Gospels, they follow a very similar pattern in how they talk about the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Although John is also one of the Gospels, it does not follow the same pattern as the other three Gospels. Going back to Dr. Bailey's article. In his article, which was first published in 1991, Dr. Bailey points out that oral tradition is, quote, still very much alive in the Middle East. End quote. In fact, not only are these oral traditions still practiced, but Dr. Bailey writes that these traditions are, quote, held in high regard by both Christians and Muslims. End quote. Something that's important to note is that these communities act as a control for the stories that were shared. In these cultures, the communities knew these poems, proverbs, historical people, and events very well and therefore knew when the reciter made a mistake. In fact, regarding poems and proverbs, Dr. Bailey points out, quote, If the reciter quotes a proverb with so much as one word out of place, he will be corrected by a chorus of voices, end quote. I should point out that there is some flexibility when it comes to reciting information about historical people and events. However, even then, there's control. Dr. Bailey writes, quote, Here there is flexibility and control. The central threads of the story cannot be changed, but flexibility in detail is allowed. End quote. For example, when a person is retelling a story, they have the freedom to change the order around. Dr. Bailey explains that they can do this, quote, as long as the central thrust of the story was not changed. End quote. Dr. Bailey points out that through these oral traditions, quote, the story can endure a hundred transmissions through a chain of a hundred and one different people and the inner core of the story remains intact. Within the structure, the storyteller has flexibility within limits to tell it his own way, but the basic storyline remains the same. By telling and retelling the story, 
The story does not evolve from A to B to C. Rather, the original structure of the story remains the same, but it can be colored green or red or blue. End quote. This is exactly what we see with the Gospels. The central threads and the inner core are the same, but each of the Gospels are colored differently based on each author's personality, background, and the people being written to. Dr. Bailey provides an example of how this works with a parable about a Bedouin and a camel that he heard told in 1967 and was later repeated to him intact in 1984. As I said, Dr. Bailey heard this parable in 1967, and he points out in his article, quote, All this happened in the modern, sophisticated city of Beirut, not in a small, rural village. Yet, the parable survived Protestant circles and was retold all across the Middle East. Indeed, in the summer of 1984, the parable was repeated to me intact in Bristol, England, by a witness who had heard it in Jordan in the late 60s. Such is the strength of informal, controlled oral tradition in the Middle East. End quote. Besides Dr. Bailey's article showing how oral traditions are still used by Christians and Muslims, an article from Georgetown University Law Center titled, This I Know From My Grandfather, the battle for admissibility of indigenous oral history as proof of tribal land claims, shows that Canadian courts have allowed oral histories from indigenous peoples to be used in court in order to prove land ownership. These oral traditions and oral histories are therefore seen as being reliable and are able to be used in a court of law. Before I move on to my next topic, I'd like to point out that in his book, Jesus Before the Gospels, Bart Ehrman makes it seem like oral histories cannot be trusted. He argues that these histories can't be trusted because they are based on memories and therefore should not be seen as being trustworthy. However, Ehrman also contradicts himself and admits that memories can be trusted. For example, listen to what Ehrman admits. On page 143 of his book, Jesus Before the Gospels, Ehrman writes, quote, But my basic point here is that despite the faults of memory, we do obviously remember a lot of things, and the fundamental memories themselves can often be right. End quote. Besides this admission, Ehrman also wrote the following in the introduction of his book. He wrote, quote, Schwartz, in particular, wants to emphasize that this reality of memory does not mean that what we remember about our past as individuals or social groups is simply fabricated and unreliable. On the contrary, most of what we remember is accurate and historical. End quote. It's clear from what Ehrman has said that even though there can be issues with our memories, most of what we remember is accurate and historical. Even though we've just seen that oral tradition should be seen as being reliable, there's another question that confronts the Gospels. The question is, were the Gospels written by non-eyewitnesses? According to the skeptics, they were. For example, on page 3 of his book titled Jesus Before the Gospels, that I keep referring to, 
Bart Ehrman writes, quote, Critical scholars have long argued that the surviving records of Jesus, which are the Gospels, are not memories recorded by those who are eyewitnesses. They are memories of later authors who had heard about Jesus from others, who were telling what they had heard from others, who were telling what they had heard from yet others. They are memories of memories of memories. End quote. This quote and claim from Bart Ehrman brings up an important question that needs to be answered. Are the Gospels the result of non-eyewitness memories? As I said, this is a very important question. However, it's an important question not just for Christians, but for non-Christians too. For the Christian, this is important because if the Gospels were written by people who never witnessed the events and miracles described in each Gospel account, then how can we know that they are even true? In fact, if you think about it, based on the lack of people that you and I have witnessed casting out demons, healing the blind, deaf, and lame, raising people from the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine, raising from the dead, and visibly ascending into heaven— then we would have to conclude that these events could not have possibly happened the way that they are recorded. In other words, if these events were not written by eyewitnesses, they have to be false. If these stories were not recorded by eyewitnesses to each of these events, then they should be considered no more authoritative than any entertaining Disney or Marvel movie where the characters possess incredible powers. For the non-Christian, This is also an important question, because if the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, then the events that they describe are historical events, events which actually took place. This means that Jesus is the Son of God, who came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to take away the sins of the world, including yours and mine, was buried for three days, he rose from the dead forever conquering sin and death, and after appearing to many witnesses, he ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. If the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, then you should consider the message that they contain. So, were the Gospels written by non-eyewitnesses? If you're a new Christian, or someone that doesn't even claim to be a Christian, you might be wondering what I mean by Gospels. The word Gospel is a word that translated from Latin and Greek means good news and refers to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. There are four books in the Bible known as the Gospels, which I addressed earlier. The Gospels that are included in the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And traditionally, these Gospels represent eyewitness testimony. For example, Matthew and John were both eyewitnesses and disciples of Jesus. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and Mark was the secretary of Peter and wrote down Peter's sermons. Two of the four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. However, Mark, as I said, was Peter's secretary and wrote Peter's words down. Therefore, even though the Gospel has Mark's name, It is actually an eyewitness testimony of Peter written down by Mark. Therefore, the Gospel of Mark also represents eyewitness testimony. The other Gospel is Luke, 
which was written by Luke, who was a physician and a historian. In his gospel, Luke claims to have looked into and researched everything related to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote his gospel also based on eyewitness testimony. In other words, each of the four gospels included in the Christian Bible represents eyewitness testimony. However, skeptics argue that these men did not actually write these books. In fact, in his book, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman claims that the four Gospels were originally published anonymously and circulated without any titles for almost a century before the church began adding titles to them, which was long after the disciples had died. This also means that they may not have been written by eyewitnesses, and therefore, according to this view, means that they should not be trusted. This is a serious claim, but as we will see, these claims are erroneous and are not supported by any evidence. In fact, we will see that the evidence disproves these erroneous claims. For example, in his book titled The Case for Jesus, Dr. Brant Petrie addresses each of these points that Ehrman has made and shows that these arguments do not line up with what manuscripts and history shows. In fact, on page 15 he writes, quote, The only problem is that the theory is almost completely baseless. It has no foundation in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels. It fails to take seriously how ancient books were copied and circulated, and it suffers from an overall lack of historical plausibility. End quote. On pages 17 through 20 of his book, The Case for Jesus, Dr. Petrie provides a rebuttal for each of Barterman's arguments. Dr. Petrie points out the following. He explains that there are no anonymous gospel manuscripts, not even in the earliest and best manuscripts. In every single language, all four of the gospels are attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even with some variation, there is absolute uniformity with the titles. Some titles may omit the word gospels, but each manuscript includes the title of the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Barterman disagrees, though. For example, in a quote shared by Dr. Petrie on page 17, Ehrman writes the following, quote, Because our surviving Greek manuscripts provide such a wide variety of different titles for the Gospels, textual scholars have long realized that their familiar names, for example, the Gospel according to Matthew, do not go back to a single original title, but were added later by scribes, end quote. This quote by Ehrman can also be found at the end of Bart Ehrman's book titled Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium under the notes section on pages 248 and 249. Now that we've heard from both Petrie and Ehrman, we now need to ask ourselves, which one of these men is correct? Being a Christian, should I say that Dr. Petrie is correct because I want to believe that the Gospels are trustworthy? No. Absolutely not. Likewise, if you're a skeptic, you shouldn't say that Dr. Ehrman is correct just because you want to believe that the Gospels are corrupt. Both sides must look at the evidence and the arguments being made, and both sides must be intellectually honest when they look at the evidence. Let's look at the claims being made by Bart Ehrman. Are there really huge differences in the manuscripts as Ehrman claims? To answer this, 
Petrie directs our attention to the actual manuscripts. On page 16 of his book, he lists the titles of each of the early manuscripts along with the century that they were found. The dates of these manuscripts are as late as the 5th century to as early as the 2nd century. I will point out that on a couple of the manuscripts listed, some of the letters are missing in the titles. However, even then, it is still clear what the title was. For example, one of the manuscripts was titled The Gospel According to M-A-R and the K was missing. Another manuscript was missing the letters G-O-S-P but contained the last two letters E-L. So the title was E-L According to Mark. There was also a similar issue with one of the manuscripts for Matthew. The manuscript was missing the G and the O in Gospel, as well as the TH and the W in Matthew. What remained was S-P-E-L according to M-A-T-E. In one of the manuscripts for John, the J was missing. Instead of reading the Gospel according to John, it read the Gospel according to O-H-N. And as I said, it was missing the first letter, which was the J. In each of these manuscripts where the letters were missing, it was clear that the manuscript was talking about either Matthew, Mark, or John. The so-called variance that Bar Ehrman was referring to is that many of the manuscripts for Matthew said gospel according to Matthew. However, there were a couple of the manuscripts that simply said according to Matthew. For Mark's gospel, most of the manuscripts had the title gospel according to Mark. However, there were a couple manuscripts that simply had according to Mark for the title. This same pattern is seen in Luke and John's gospel too. Most of the manuscripts for Luke have the title gospel according to Luke. However, as with the other gospels, there are a couple manuscripts that have the title according to Luke. And the same is true for John's gospel. Most of the manuscripts have the title gospel according to John. However, there is a couple manuscripts that simply say, according to John. Again, this list can be found on page 16 of Dr. Brant Petrie's book, The Case for Jesus. It's clear that there is no wide variety in the manuscripts, as Bart Ehrman claims. The manuscript evidence shows that when Bart Ehrman claims that there is a wide variety of different titles for the Gospels, and that these titles don't go back to a single original title, he's clearly ignoring the evidence and painting an inaccurate picture of the Gospels. To counter the claims of Ehrman, listen to what Dr. Petrie says. He writes, quote, Look back at the chart, showing the titles of the earliest Greek manuscripts. Where is the wide variety of the titles Ehrman is talking about? The only significant difference is that in some of the later copies, the word gospel is missing, probably because the title was abbreviated. In fact, it is precisely the familiar names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are found in every single manuscript we possess. End quote. If you notice, although not all of the manuscripts say gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, as I pointed out, they all have those names attached to them. Not one of those manuscripts is anonymous. Not only are there no anonymous Gospels, but Dr. Petrie points out 
that there are major problems with this theory. He explains, quote, The second major problem with the theory of the anonymous Gospels is the utter implausibility that a book circulating around the Roman Empire without a title for almost a hundred years could somehow, at some point, be attributed to exactly the same author by scribes throughout the world and yet leave no trace of disagreement in any manuscripts. And, by the way, this is supposed to have happened not just once, but with each one of the four Gospels. End quote. Not only that, but if you think about it, it becomes clear that the titles for each of the Gospels would have been needed immediately. For example, Dr. Petrie writes, quote, Moreover, the idea that it would have taken almost a hundred years for the titles to be added completely fails to take into account the fact that from the moment there was even more than one gospel in circulation, readers would have needed some way to distinguish them from one another. End quote. Another excellent point that Dr. Petrie makes in his book is that if the anonymous theory is correct, we should expect to find some anonymous copies, which we don't find. Not only that, but we should expect to find contradictory titles. For example, we should see some manuscript copies attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but other copies attributed to people like Andrew and Peter and even Jesus. However, we don't see this in any of the manuscripts. There are no discrepancies in the manuscripts and there are no anonymous Gospels. Dr. Petrie points out that although the Gospels weren't written anonymously, the book of Hebrews was. Let's see what the evidence looks like when there actually was an anonymous book. Dr. Petrie points out that what the manuscript evidence shows is that when a book is anonymous, it stays anonymous, or it's attributed to different authors, which is what we see with the book of Hebrews, but not with any of the Gospels. For example, most of the manuscripts for the book of Hebrews simply say, to the Hebrews. However, there are manuscripts that say, to the Hebrews, written from Italy by Timothy. Another that says, to the Hebrews, written from Rome by Paul to those in Jerusalem. And one that says, to the Hebrews, written in Hebrew from Italy anonymously by Timothy. In other words, what this shows is that when a book was written anonymously, we see that there are variations in the titles regarding who the book is attributed to. Now, even with these variations that we see with the book of Hebrews, the early church recognized that there was a close link to the Apostle Paul, whether written by him or by Timothy, his protege. Let me bring us back to the Gospels. Oftentimes, critics argue that the names of the Gospels were added to give each book authority. However, if you think about this claim, it doesn't make any sense to have the Gospel according to Mark or the Gospel according to Luke. Dr. Petrie accurately points out, quote, that if the goal of title was to give authority to the Gospel, it does not make sense to attribute two of the Gospels to non-eyewitnesses, end quote. He continues and writes, quote, If the purpose of the title was solely to give authority, other names would have been used, such as Andrew or Peter, who was the head of the apostles, 
or better yet, Jesus, end quote. The fact that the Gospels were attributed to Mark and Luke shows that the early church was not simply adding titles for the sake of giving those books authority. As I bring this episode to a close, I'd like to address one last argument that is made. That is, that the Gospels were influenced by many legendary stories which were circulating. These legendary stories were Acts of Peter, where it mentions Simon Magus flying around the city, Proto-Gospel of James, which talks about the miraculous way that Mary was born, and the Infancy Gospel of Jesus, which talks about Jesus using his miraculous powers to kill people who messed with him, which included two young boys. So, the question is, did the early church really believe these stories? Did these stories influence the writers of the Gospels? The answer to this question is no. Nowhere in the Gospels do we see any influence that resulted from these stories. For example, there are two articles, both from the Weekly World News, that show pictures of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington in dresses and with their hair done up like women. In these articles, they say that both of these presidents were in fact women. If I were to tell you that George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were both women, and that I knew this based off of these news articles, what would you think? Would these articles influence you and your views of these American presidents? The obvious answer is no. These articles would not influence your views of these two presidents because you can clearly recognize that these articles are fake. You can tell even without looking at the photoshopped images that they are clearly fake. Just like you can hear this claim or look at these kinds of stories and articles and know that they are fake, people during the first and second centuries did the same thing. It was clear to the early church that these so-called gospels were the weekly world news or the national inquirer of the New Testament. They were clearly fake, and therefore, they were rejected and never accepted as being canonical. In fact, Everett Harrison, in his book Introduction to the New Testament, writes, quote, The student is able to compare this literature with the acknowledged books of the New Testament. If he has misgivings about the formation of the canon, feeling that perhaps the endorsement of the books was somewhat arbitrary, it is morally certain that he will be won to a position of complete confidence in the superiority of the New Testament books on the basis of comparison. End quote. Throughout this episode, I've shown that although critics attack the Gospels, their attacks lack evidence. I've shown that even though it took several decades for the Gospels to be written, the oral traditions accurately and reliably preserved the message of the Gospels. I also showed that not only were the Gospels not anonymously written, each of the Gospels represented eyewitness testimony. Lastly, I showed that in no way did legendary stories influence the Gospels. The Gospels, as found in the Christian Bible, represent eyewitness testimony and are accurate accounts of historical events which happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was a real person 
who died on the cross. And according to eyewitness testimony, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. What you do with this evidence is now up to you. For a more in-depth discussion on the reliability of the Bible as a whole, listen to episodes 10 through 17. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we look at another topic that confronts Christianity. God bless.